I am Sergio Brodsky, and I'm a brand and foresight strategist. And I'm Jazz Giuliani, the editor of Marketing Mag. Welcome to Futurecast, the podcast where we talk with professional futurists, renowned academics, and high-profile business leaders from around the world. In this series, we think about the future so that we can meaningfully change the present. The time is now. Join us for better futures. This episode of Futurecast is proudly sponsored by Adobe. To discover the skills marketers need today and in the future, visit marketo.com or click the link in our episode notes. Welcome to Futurecast, and tonight we have a very special guest, Mr. So Batmid Chastanier, the global CMO of the United Nations World Food Program. Hello, Saul. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. I'm really looking forward to this. Maybe should I say buonasera or buongiorno? Buonasera. Buongiorno. So I think before we um, dive into the interview, Sol, it's pretty difficult to avoid one particular topic. We have to address the fact that there's been some pretty big news recently. Um, it was recently announced that the World Food Program has won the Nobel Prize for Peace. So congratulations on that. It's so exciting for you and the whole team. Thank you. And obviously it's shining a global spotlight on the mission to end hunger, which is so very important. And I have to point out that you're also no stranger to major prizes and your ideas and work over the years have won multiple awards at the Cannes Lions Festival. So we were curious, what did winning a lion feel like in comparison to winning the Nobel and vice versa? It's really difficult to, to compare them because for me, I, I've only just joined <laughs> And mm. there's the, the the award is is generations deep. You know, we've been doing this for like over f- almost sixty years. And I was personally involved in the in the Can Lions. I was personally involved in those projects with teams, and so mm. I felt a sense of personal ownership. Whereas the Nobel Peace Prize is is remarkable, but it, but it's it's not really. I, I, it, it's not really me. Uh, it, it's 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 the staff and it's it's the beneficiaries um, and the people we serve and and also it it's also it's also bittersweet because whilst it's uh, I think our executive director used this term the other day it's like whilst it's a great honour it's also a great tragedy because the problem is still there and the reason we won is because of all the work we've done but also because the problem is still there you know 690 million people go to bed hungry. And, and, and it's getting worse because of COVID, because of conflict. So it's a very kind of mixed emotion that I think you'll find a lot of people in the organization felt. So, so, so they're, they're quite difficult things to compare in terms of emotions, at least in my, in my experience. I mean, it's, it's a great honor. And I, I'm, I feel very lucky to be associated with such a remarkable organization. And I can probably talk about that later. But they're, they 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 didn't they don't really fit comfortably together if that yeah if that makes sense yeah that makes perfect sense and i think you're very right it's such a it's sad that it's something that there's still so much work to be done but i'm also grateful for the work that you are doing and that you that this brings a lot of attention to such an important issue yeah i mean you you used the term shone a light on the issue and and, and from a from a comms and marketing perspective, it raised awareness of something very foundational, which is what on earth has hunger got to do with conflict? What's, what's food got to do with 
with conflict situations and 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 it is it is very core it allows you to start having a different conversation with the world which is actually these things are deeply intertwined you know the the, the we we describe it as as shocks to fragile communities and I think it's 10 out of the 13 of the, the most difficult food insecure areas in the world are, are conflict areas. But these are also areas that are disproportionately affected by climate change. So you get this kind of force multiplier effect. And, and food is often the fulcrum. So food is the, the center of things because hunger, conflict drives hunger and hunger drives conflict. And, and you get this incredibly complicated web of fragility that means that people just can't get themselves out of it and you suddenly realize that the nobel peace prize is a is a way of shining a light on on this complexity and how difficult it is to explain it to people and how important it is to make sure that what we call them is food systems so that the, the the system of food that people interact with is secure otherwise you you've got all sorts of problems the prize itself is just a really good way of getting the world's attention and getting them to ask a fundamental question, which is why why would an organization that looks like it's just about food, why would it win a Nobel Peace Prize? And then that means you can start having a, a fundamentally different conversation with the world. And we need funding too. So it means we can ask for different things from different people, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely it does. And it's really important to have those conversations. And I'm so glad that we have you on here to speak about the complexities as you have touched on. And um, well, Sergio, speaking of prizes, so as we're talking about the Nobel Peace Prize, I have to ask, I hear that you actually have some close ties with the Nobel Prize yourself. And there is in fact a relic living in the Nobel Museum in Stockholm. So can you tell us a bit about that? That's that's actually a funny story. Uh, I, I do actually I do have I'm related to a Nobel Prize winner Joseph Brodsky who in 1987 won the Nobel Prize in literature, and I remember visiting Gamla Stan, which is the old square in Stockholm, and they have the the Nobel Museum there. And as you as you get inside, you see the the typewriter that Joseph Brodsky used to write his poems and so many other things. And uh, yeah, I was I was very much you know taken back as part of my my family history, and uh, you know as I was looking at the website of the of the, of the Nobel Prize, I found this paragraph that I would love to read to you because so what you said before about the award being generations deep into the organization, uh, actually reflects what uh, uh, what Joseph Brodsky wrote on one of his most famous poems, which goes like that. What interests me and always has interested me most, most is time and its effect on man. How it changes him, grinds him. On the other hand, this is just a metaphor for what time does to space and the world. Time reigns supreme. All that is not time is subjected to the power of time, the ruler, the owner. Time is, is the enemy of, of man and everything man has created and holds dear. Ruins are the triumph of oxygen and time. And it's it's really interesting. It's beautiful for me because it's very similar to that idea of uh, wabi-sabi, that Japanese art of fixing broken vases, of having scars, of having ruins, of, of having something that indicates that something happened in the past, but you can still build on that to create a better future. So to, to that, to, in, in that sense, so I think that 
WFP has been around for 60 plus years and the many years that you will be there, I think creates an opportunity for many more contributions. And uh, as Jess said, we're very impressed and very grateful for having an organization like that contributing in such an incredible way. Well, well, no, thank you. It's a fascinating quote. And the idea around it just made, as you were talking, it made me think about you know, building back better. And COVID, it's the opportunity, whilst there's enormous there's an almost sense of loss and an almost sense of, of challenge. There is also an opportunity to reset. I think people are looking at the world in a different way. And I think there is a solidarity in a sense that people understand the challenges that other people face in a slightly different way to the way they did before because they've, they've been faced with difficulties they probably haven't, haven't had to address before. So for me, there's a, I mean, and it's building back better is a, is a term that's used at the UN a lot recently because it's, it feels like it feels like a, a moment in time when we you know we, we can we can pause, take a depth a breath and say okay are we is this right? Are the way we're doing things can we do this better? Is there another way that we could approach this that could? And and it applies to WFP too. You know how, how do how do we do our job better? How do we serve more people? That's why I found the the subject of the podcast very interesting because it's about you know building a better future. And this feels like a very appropriate time to be doing that and having that conversation. Yeah, that's very much, I guess, the genesis for the idea that Sergio came up with for Futurecast is taking this opportunity to have these conversations now and hopefully, you know, we, we have a more hopeful perspective as well. If we can have these conversations, if we can acknowledge some of the things that we're talking about, we can build from there. Um, and I think maybe one of the issues is that it was too easy to ignore for a long time. We've gone in deep quickly, but I'm going to sort of change gears. <laughs> We've gone deep right away and we're going to get back there and I can't wait to unpack some of these ideas with you, Sol. But um, we wanted to talk a little bit about you and about your career experience because I think that you obviously have, you've got that background in the agency world and that's really fascinating to us as marketers and for the people that listen to this podcast. And so we want to hear a bit about, you know, you could have continued in your career to go from client to the publisher side or started your own thing and been very, very successful as you already were. But um, you took the top marketing job at WFP. So we were curious about what the drivers were behind that decision. So, so I'll just roll back. So it's like three years ago, my, my previous job, I was the CSO of EMEA for the now called VML Wine Art. And I was really happy. I had deep really strong relationships with my kind of partners so especially um, Andrew Dimitriou who's the CEO and Jamie Mandelbaum who's the chief creative officer you know we we're doing great work we had a we had a really nice working relationship I was on the global credit board which I found particularly interesting I, I felt like I could really contribute there so I was about as happy as I've ever been in my career but I, I, I suspect I'm not alone in this but I, I had I started doing some reflections on what it is I was proud of and what it is that kind of gave me joy. And and it was the, it felt like it was the kind of more meaningful stuff. So if you look at the can things I've been involved in, like the domestic abuse for Vodafone, um, the red light app, or the, uh, the last of issue in Poland, you know, trying to tackle misogyny. It was those things that I felt were really interesting and I just I emotionally connected with them and it just made me realize that actually I don't want that to be part of my job I, don't, I want that to be my job mm. and you know it, I just I just started 
trying to work out what earth that would look like. And I know I've I've got I've got many colleagues in, in the ad business and in, in marketing who who often feel the same way is that what do you do if you if you reach your middle point of your career, what do you do with the rest of it? Is this it? At the same time it was it seemed like a good idea at the time. I I did a master's at Oxford in strategy and innovation. So I had this kind of mind opening experience where I started looking at broader business issues, broader kind of strategic issues, innovation issues. And there was this really interesting concept called explore versus exploit, which is the idea that in order to have an organization that succeeds over time, so decades, rather than just um, within a decade, you have to uh, exploit what you're currently good at, but also explore what's going to put you out of business in the future at the same time. You know, it's, it's the idea about having a being able to do those at the same time is very difficult for lots of reasons. As I was kind of unpacking that, I realized I actually needed to do that for myself. So what was I currently good at versus what would I, what could I be good at and what would give me meaning in the, in the future? And I realized I w- my, my wife, Emily, and I went to uh, New York and we spent two weeks there and I, I journal every morning. And so you can kind of track my thinking. And I, I just started just trying to work out what I would do next. And it's one of those strange things, the way the universe does, I, the, I, got, I got a call from the UN about four or five weeks later after that New York experience. And I started a recruitment process and ended up with the job. But it was one of those things where you, my frame of mind was right. My, I felt like I was in the right place to have that kind of conversation. I, I, I may not have responded in the way I did before to that. So, you know, it's, it felt to me like it was one of those things that the universe kind of presented something to me at the right time. And I was, I was ready for it. That's 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 very interesting, but it's also you can't say that it's just that the universe suddenly you know threw the dice and uh, here here it is. You're you're obviously prepared for that, but throughout your career, what were you know those peers or clients or books or thinkers, doers or challenges that actually influenced and stretched you the most to take this the the, the top job with WFP? The first one I start with is um, Mark Green, who I, uh, when I when I moved to Australia from from London, 90, I think it was 1999. I Mark Green and I ended up being housemates together, and he's one. He's he's a very he's a very dear friend. But he he's he's got hustle. So I mean, it's taken me a long time to develop this this muscle. It's not I'm not naturally pushy as a person. And I, I learned a lot from him because he was relentless. And he always, he, he was very ambitious. He was relentless in pushing creativity and pushing problem solving. I, I learned a great deal from him because he just I saw it every day, both at work, but also at home. He made me really want to see where I could push my my skills, but also the, the skills of the agency. There's a, a guy called Marcus Brown, who I think he now runs a um, a pitch business. And he, he had this incredible, incredible sense of energy and incredible ability to present. And I, I remember just watching him and going, I oh, just, wow, that is, you, you want to buy what he's selling. And he said something that I've always remembered, which is it's all in the framing. And my understanding of that changed over time, but essentially it's about perception is really, really important uh, as much as the substance itself. 
From a from a creative point of view, I'd, the first person that comes into my mind is always Jamie Mandelbaum because he, he he's a, he's a good friend. You'll notice that these these people are friends. But we used to have a really good working relationship, which was it was very honest, it was very open minded, and we respected we respected each other. And I think working with him really made me realise just there isn't really a line between my old function of strategy, creative strategy and creativity. And if you think about, if you think there's one, what, what one stops and the other starts, then you've got a problem. And in the idea that, you know, the, the old adage that a good idea can come from anywhere is, is actually pretty accurate, but also you can, you know, Jamie's one of the best strategic thinkers I know. I'm far better strategic thinker than I'm a creative person. <laughs> I miss working with him. Because you have that, you know, you have that kind of natural sparring partner creatively. There was one other person. It's um, a guy called John Rodaitsky, who's now, I think he's he's the partner for brand and marketing at EY. And he, he's always been a very kind of wise counsel to me, a mentor. And I think it's always, it's always good to have those people and to nurture those relationships because experience, you know, it doesn't matter how smart you are, experience counts for almost everything. What skills will marketers need to drive growth in the years ahead? Download Marketing 2025 to discover how 700 executives imagine the future and the top skills and tools you'll need to master. From the role of machine learning to neuromarketing, learn what will satisfy customers' ever-evolving expectations. Download it now from a link in our episode notes. So since you've mentioned the word experience and based on your very recent experience with with, uh, the UNWFP, what do you think that multilateral organizations can learn from agencies? Agencies are now, it's, it's, it's a tough environment for agencies right now, but it still is a very dynamic environment where people are learning all the time and sharing that as well. From your first year with the WFP, what do you think you can bring from agency land into this completely different world? There's a lot of things I think that they have in common so Mm. and it took me quite a while to work this out so ultimately it's about value about showing value so we are an enormous organization so we spend billions of 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 dollars a year we know we're the backbone of the un we feed over 100 million people a year we have to show impact we have to show the value that we've created and and at its very basic level that's the same thing that a marketing department has to do for its organization. It's the same thing an agency has to do for its clients. We, we have to prove our value. We have to show it and we have to be able to explain it. The, the one thing I've has become very clear to me is just how important the basics are and having a clear understanding of the brand, so what, the, the, what you're trying to construct in the minds of, of the audience, whether it's a donor government, a minister, whether it's somebody on the high street, but also just understanding how to communicate in a really simple way, how to, how to get to the nub of something so that you can explain it in a clear and engaging way is actually something that agencies do really well. And mm. we often forget how hard it is to do it. And I think the agency world often undervalues how important that clarity 
um, that discipline is because it, it's it's when it's done well, it's extraordinary. You know, you can have you know strategic thoughts, creative ideas that just don't just if you just read them, you 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 know you have a sense of something that is way way beyond the words. And I I often think that agencies forget actually that how important that is. So so one I mean one of the reasons why my role was created was to to take those sort of learnings and try and apply them to a big organization that hasn't hasn't necessarily had to think like that before. I mean, we have an amazing communications function. We're probably one of the best sort of news creation, news shaping organizations in the world. And I, you know, Greg Barrow and Corinne Woods, who are the core management in, in our comms team, are world class. And so so the reason I got brought in was to was to complement those skills with a with a more with a marketing kind of creative angle. So I, I think large organisations like UNWP can can learn a lot from agencies. Absolutely. And uh, what you said is that th- that was the reason why you were brought in. And I remember the first time we spoke when you're talking about WFP and how how massive it is and that it was actually created four or five years before the UN was even created. But the WFP was uh, the unit that not many people actually knew about, not, not, not as well as the UNESCO or uh, UNICEF and some of the more famous ones. I'm sure that the Nobel Prize would have helped a little bit with the fame factor. But since you arrived, and that was maybe uh, one or two months before the outbreak, I, I'm, I'm assuming that a lot has changed. And it's always the case that job descriptions are never the best predictors of what your job will actually be. And since the outbreak has this jd been rewritten for you have your priorities changed and throughout this journey what was the impact on on your everyday life and what in what ways did you have to adapt learn or unlearn things to be as fit as possible for this new reality in your new role that's a really good question i mean at a very basic level at a personal level i mean i was only uh, emily and i only moved to rome four and a half, five weeks before lockdown. So from a very basic team dynamics point of view, it's very difficult to build teams virtually. You suddenly realize and understand how important face-to-face contact is. So that, that, was, that, was, that was always going to be the case, but I suspect I'm not alone in, in, in feeling like that. I mean, the role itself didn't change fundamentally, but the focus did because COVID had a number of effects. I mean, the, the first one was it created a whole new set of people who are having uh, kind of food-related issues because COVID disrupted the economic functions of, of most countries. It disrupted supply chains. It prevented access to, to food. It limited, limited people's ability to work, especially in because medium-income countries where these people don't have any safety nets, so like a, a tuk-tuk driver, for example, or somebody who sells street food, they've got no safety net, and suddenly their business trip just stopped. We call it the new face of hunger. So you get this whole urban population that is in a place that you'd normally see in a rural community. As an organization, we had to adapt. We have a, a large cash-based transfer wing where we're giving giving these people money because the market still exists in those in those areas. But also you you get it rippled out because you've got um, remittance, so money paid from a, a more developed country to a, to a developing country. So all of that stuff dried up because the economies were, were, were stopped. 
So the, the, the whole system fundamentally changed. And that meant that we had to pivot as an organization to change with it. So the messaging, the, the prioritization changed fundamentally. At another level, it also, to, to use Jazz, your language at the beginning, it shone a light on what we're able to do. Um, so so for, for me, as somebody who just entered the organization, I saw it at its best. The one thing that you can say about the World Food Programme is it's an extraordinary fast responder, both in a humanitarian sense. So we're the, we're the largest humanitarian organization in the world, but we're also a very impactful development organization. So I'm using the language from the sector. So humanitarian is, is kind of emergency, fixing emergencies quickly, so feeding people. Development is about the longer term and fixing those underlying kind of fragile food system issues that I mentioned before. And feeding people just isn't enough. It's 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 absolutely critical. But unless you unless you address the underlying challenges, it's going to keep coming back, and it'll come back you know, week after week, month after month, year after year, gener- generation after generation, and it has huge impacts on on the people involved. The COVID situation actually just shone a light on the work that we were doing, and it shone a light on the kind of stories we need to tell to explain those to people. And then, then you've got Nobel, which is which is another another window into that. Which so, so all of those things I think have been, whilst whilst very challenging, have also been very helpful because it's just it's always in those difficult moments that you that brands shine the shine the brightest. I think. Mm. And you sort of are touching on my next question quite well because you're, you know, speaking about all of these complexities in relation to COVID, and you know, obviously your work spans 88 countries and it's across remote and challenging places. And as you said, they're impacted by so many things, geopolitical conflicts and environmental disasters and supply chains, as you said before, funding and there's considerations about technology and so on. So forward planning and flexible thinking must just be in the DNA of what you do there. Futurecast is all about the future and, and looking forward, how has your exposure to this work changed or reframed the way that you think about the future? I think you'll you'll hear this from people who've shifted from a more commercially orientated world to one where you're working in a humanitarian development space is that there is an enormous sense of, of gratefulness. You realise quite how lucky you are um, because the people you know we, we serve, the people we're helping, have very, you know, are, are in extremely difficult situations. And part of our job is to give them hope and to give them a sense of that the future, you know, tomorrow's going to be better than today. And often that isn't the case. I, I, this word is so overused, but it's been an incredibly humbling experience. And you realize that at a very basic level is most people don't have a future in any most people don't have a kind of hope for for, for that future and the window through which i've looked you know what does the future look like has has fundamentally changed but at the same time there's you look at what an organization like mine can do and you realize actually if, if if you can if you can pivot if you can adapt and apply the kind of capabilities that we have to not just feeding people, but also addressing those underlying causes, then the future looks much brighter. The future looks much brighter, I think. 
but it's it's mm. been it's it, it, the humility is whilst it's overused as a word for me is the how I feel about about how to think about the future now well that makes a lot of sense and you're very right. And I think that when we spoke with Professor Sahail in the first couple of episodes of this show, we sort of touched on the the fact that there's no equity in the future as it stands. But I hope that, you know, that's something that can change through organisations like yours and through a greater awareness and action, really. And so recently we published an article um, which is a collaboration between you know, Sergio and yourself. In that you wrote that the WFP taught you to treat innovation simply as a potential solution to a difficult problem rather than the just next disruptive big thing. And would love if you could please expand on that a little bit. Yeah, so this is one of those, again, coming from the agency world, we were always looking for emerging technologies and how we could jump on them and help help our clients use them to better deliver their business. But the more I... The more time I spent at WP, and I always I often describe my time here as a like a dark room with a torch. You know, you just think you've got a sense of something, and then you realise there's in another division that does extraordinary things. <laughs> so I've, I've, I've got every day, every day, my every day, I'm, I'm I have my mind open. But in in the article when we were discussing the idea about innovation, and I, I realised that. UNWP is an extraordinarily innovative organization, especially in the field. And it, it often isn't about the, you know, the shiny thing that everybody's going to jump on. I talked about the use of blockchain in, in Cox's Bazaar, which is, I think, it's the largest refugee camp in the world, just, just, just as a way of allowing people to aggregate all the, the resources they get from multiple agencies Blockchain is is something that's really really powerful, but it, but it's only really powerful because it it solves a problem, which is these people don't have a way of aggregating, getting all access to all of those things. And they don't have a way of doing it in a COVID environment, so we had a QR code, so they didn't actually have to use a another handset. Mm-hmm. And and also it kind of brought up that question brought up lots of things like there's a we have this amazing community based idea that we rolled out in um in niger which is sahel now sahel is the this enormous strip of africa south of the sahara desert and it's it's about i think it's about 80 percent of the land is degraded it, and they've got really simple technologies that they use so they've got this thing called a half moon which is a which is an irrigation which is basically you you're, you're creating a, an irrigation um how do I explain it? Like an, an irrigation area where, where where water captures and you can you can grow crops. It also made me think about building resilience in communities. And, and if you, if you look at the the reason why those half moons were created was because you've got challenges in the local environment where you have livestock owners and um, landowners competing for for resources. There's a community based idea where you get them together and by using these half moons they can create they can create hay that is then sold to uh, livestock owners and that reduces conflict so it, it reduces tension as well as stimulating the local economy and the reason i bring that up is that is a that is a technology an innovation that is tens of thousands of years old that's being applied in a novel way to a novel situation and the one thing I've noticed that WP is incredibly good at is it doesn't see 
innovation as innovation per se. It's just like it's 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 a way of solving a problem and it's business model design. So you could say I can I can apply this innovation that perhaps isn't doesn't uh, one part of the organization wouldn't see as innovative and putting it somewhere else and suddenly it becomes a really clever way of fixing a problem. And we have lots of examples of that all over the place. It's, I, mean, I think it also creates a very interesting parallel between innovation and values. And in this sense, we've been noticing many companies and, and agencies even adopting some of the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. And for WFP, I'm assuming that SDG number two, Zero Hunger, is the one that matters most above all. Uh, I'm sure that there will be others as well that make part of the, the, the organization's vision, but this one is at the very core of it. But what do you think about brands adopting SDGs as part of their visions or mission statements? And when does this type of approach becomes effective or when do you think it's just fluff? <laughs> uh, I, I, I can't remember who said this, but, it, but somebody said, um, if you want to become rich, you need to solve the world's biggest problems for the most people. And... From my point of view, there's a there's a I think the role of business is is critical given the size and impact of these organisations. It's the right thing to do is to try and solve those problems. It's also good business. I, I seem to remember hearing a I think it was PwC did a survey that they found that citizens were people were much more likely to buy. It's like 80, 70, 80 percent of people were more likely to buy if they felt that the organisation behind it had the um, the ambition to to make the world a better place, and it was grounded in SDGs. For me, the challenge is, and I've I've been involved in quite a few of these projects where you're force fitting an SDG onto a business that isn't necessarily designed for it. Yeah, I think the the Vodafone example is is an incredible case study because it's telecommunications, but and it's also addressing one of the SDGs in a way that aligns to the positioning of the brand. Do do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But I, I also think it has to, at a really basic level, and this is not my area of expertise, but my, my sense is it's in nobody's interest to to not try and address these problems. And mm. I'm trying to remember, there was this really good quote from Paul Pullman, uh, ex-P&G guy. He said something like, um, that there's, there's, there's no business case in enduring poverty and and climate change. So the the... The idea that we can we can the, the business can't address these issues is is fundamentally flawed, I think, because there's there's a cost of inaction. You have you know, geopolitical instability and things like that. But it's for me, it's, it's it's a very basic thing. It feels like it feels like if you you can't see the SDGs as separate things, they're all deeply interconnected. And what you don't want to have a situation is where you're addressing one SDG but then not tackling others. So you might have a really clear and persuasive point of view on, on gender inequality, for example, but if you're the fundamental part of your business is one that doesn't deliver on another, like climate change or, or, or many of the others, then you've got, you, you, have, you potentially have a problem because social media is, is, is an amazing marketing weapon, but it's also, it's the great exposer. You can't do one thing inside a company and expect it to stay inside a company. 
that is something that I, I actually have never heard before. Usually what I hear is, yes, we have chosen uh, you know, SDG2 or SDG5 and to champion that. But I, I haven't actually heard that. You know, If you're going to, to take the SDG path, you should be for all of them, not just one or two. You can't pick and choose. You need to be holistic in this view. Yeah, maybe I'm naive, but if you look at something like Unilever, they have, I don't know if you've seen this, they've got a remarkable SDG framework. Um, And for me, that was just, they have a clear sense of, they have a clear sense that that's what's driving their purpose. Mm -hmm. Now we can debate the word purpose and and how it's used perhaps, but they've clearly taken that seriously, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's it's good business for them because they know that that that's 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 the future. They they know that if they can if, if they don't address these issues, then the future is going to be quite bleak. And they've built it into their business model. And for me, that's the kind of benchmark of how you should think about it. Or someone like a Patagonia who, mm. and, you know, they, they do some amazing advertising. And they don't don't buy this jacket, but they 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 walk the talk. So they say, okay buy into these values because we we fundamentally believe in them you find, call us out find find out where we're not doing things right that is if you want to build trust that's how you do it beautycast is the marketing mag podcast series brought to you by content brains and presented by marketing mag beautycast is produced by joanne davies head of content brains and publisher of marketing mag and jazz giuliani editor of content brains and marketing mag Our executive producer is Sergio Brodsky with original music and audio production by Sam Boone. If you want further details on our podcast or our guests, please visit the episode notes in this podcast. Remember to subscribe to Futurecast so you never miss an episode.